of the free church making a decision to, to no longer affirm and hold to premillennialism as the only view that we as a, a, a group of believers and churches will hold to. So we're wanting to understand what are the other perspectives. And Guy has walked us through postmillennialism. Now we're going to think about amillennialism. This morning, we're just going gonna to jump in, get a, a quick overview of what this perspective holds to, what they believe. So that's what I have here for us this morning. So I think this, this first statement here is helpful for us, that this conversation is one about the timing and nature of Jesus' millennial kingdom reign. That's what we're trying to get at. What, when's the timing of it, and what is the nature of this reign? So let's think about the timing of the millennial kingdom. So amillennialists are going to hold to this idea that, that now is the time of the last days of this age. There's this age and there's the age to come. And those are two terms that are used commonly throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Paul, and we'll get into more of this later, but Paul speaks of the fact that we are now in the last days. And that's the present age that we're in right now. Now, this began at Jesus' first coming, and it goes until his second coming. So if we're going to map this out, purple's not working too great. Let's try black. So Jesus comes, and then because I can't draw very well, this is a crown that stands for Jesus. Um, coming back, comes back in the second coming. And so this time between here and here is what amillennialists would refer to as the millennium. This present age, right now, we're living in the millennium. In a sense, the uh, amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial maybe isn't necessarily the most helpful names. Uh, pre having to say that, that Christ is going to come and then the millennium happens, so Christ returns before the millennium. Postmillennial is going to say that Christ returns after the millennium takes place on the earth. Amillennialist is kind of this like, not really, ah means not, right, or no, so there's not really a millennium, if you will. Um, but uh, so the millennium of Revelation 20, which we've looked at, would figuratively refer to this present age. And at the return of Jesus, this age ends and the age to come begins. So any questions about the timing? That's just the, the big map for them of when they expect things to happen and take place. Let's think about the transition then from this age to the age to come. So... Yeah, this age. The age to come. What happens right here when Jesus returns, according to an amillennial perspective? Well, overall, they're expecting things throughout this time to progressively get worse and deteriorate. The culture <coughs> is not going to get better. That it's not going to become more Christian in the world. That would be the post-millennial perspective. They would expect things to get better and better over time. Amillennialists don't have that expectation. So that's where they start to diverge from post-millennialists. And some might say, they'll look to Matthew 24 and say that what Jesus is describing there is tribulation throughout this period. 
And then some amillennialists are going to say that while this is characteristic of, of life and history throughout this age, there's coming a day when there's going to be a great apostasy, when there's going to be a great tribulation, uh, when there's going to be the coming of the final Antichrist. So there's always Antichrist existing throughout history, but there's coming a day when there, the Antichrist, if you will, is going to come. And there'll be a great tribulation just before Jesus returns. Any questions about that? Does that make sense that they kind of see uh, these descriptions of tribulation, of persecution throughout this age as uh, describing all of history? And then some will believe there's a particular time where it's heightened, it's increased, it's the final uh, experience of tribulation, if you will. Yeah. Some of them, but some of them, when pressed, might say an actual seven years. Some of them might say that that seven years is just figurative of a period of great tribulation that comes at the end. Does that make sense? Yeah, but they do believe that there's some type of tribulation for Christ. Yeah, yep. And whether it's descriptive of all of history or descriptive of all of history and then gets heightened right before Christ returns, there's just, there's variations amongst those who hold to amillennialism. So. Now they would talk about this second coming of Christ as a single, simple event. It's not complex in the sense that premillennialism is going to hold to Christ returns, then there's a thousand years, um, then more events take place and unfold in terms of the second coming of Christ. And we'll get into that later when we step into premillennialism. So to them, they see a very simple, uh, and, it, and it comes from the way that at times the New Testament writers speak about his second return with a, a simple expectation that Christ returns, the end comes, that's, that's it. There's no intermediate earthly reign of Christ that they see in those texts. And we'll look at that a little bit more later. So when Christ returns, what happens then? Well, Satan is released for one final counterattack. We see that that's how they would understand Revelation 20, verses 3 and 7. And then Jesus defeats Satan. That's Revelation 20, verse 9. And we, we had a discussion earlier as we were looking through that text. And we said that most amillennialists are going to see Revelation 19 and Revelation uh, 20. I think it's, is it 7 to 10, where it describes like, Satan and Gog and Magog coming up to the city, attacking. They're going to see those as the same event. So Jesus defeats Satan. And then similar in a sense to what God was sharing with us about postmillennialists, they see only one physical resurrection there in Revelation 20. So and that's a physical resurrection of, of all people, both the just and the wicked, both the righteous and the sinners who don't repent. And so again, as you were saying, they hold similarly to postmillennialists that that first resurrection, resurrection that's spoken of in Revelation 20 refers to a, a spiritual coming to life in Christ. And the second resurrection refers to this one physical resurrection that they expect at the return of Jesus at the end of time. So they would take passages like Daniel 12 and John 5 and Acts 24, where, where it speaks of a resurrection of the just and the unjust as, as happening all at once. Whereas in a premillennial system, 
Um, you've got people resurrecting at the return of Christ. Um, the wicked staying uh, in the grave, if you will, for a thousand years and then not being resurrected until the end of that thousand years. So there's two separate resurrections in premillennialism, physical resurrections. So after everybody comes to life in this one resurrection, they're expecting then a judgment to take place. So we might think of Jesus' words in Matthew 24 about the, the judgment that's to come, uh, that he'll separate the sheep and the goats. Uh, and they're going to say that judgment is the <laughs> same judgment that's being talked about in Revelation 20 verses 11 to 15. That, that refers to the great white throne judgment. And then after that, we get ushered into the eternal state. After that judgment, the new heavens and the new earth comes, everything is made new, and we enter into eternity. And that's where they would say that the, the Old Testament promises or expectations of an earthly land, of, of a people dwelling with God, of a, a king sitting on the throne of David, that's when those promises are going to be fulfilled in their mind, is in the new heavens and the new earth. So, Any questions about what this transition from this age to the age to come looks like for amillennialists? Yeah, Linus. They would have, they would have no distinction then between God's work with Israel and the church. Pretty much. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. So, yeah. So I'm sorry. So the new heaven and new earth will be the millennial kingdom. Is what they kind of believe. No, no. Um, so new heavens and new earth is oh, yeah. here, right? Millennium's there. Millennium would be now. They're going to say the millennium is now. Yeah. The millennial kingdom is the spiritual kingdom in heaven that mm-hmm. Christ mm-hmm. reigns and rules and saints. Yeah. Um, and they're going to say that the kingdom always exists. God's kingdom is always existing. Um, now it's in a, a, a spiritual reality. And in the future, it'll be both spiritual and physical in the new heavens and new earth is, I think, a fair way to describe how they would present it. So let's, let's talk about the nature of the millennial kingdom. Okay, yeah, we got time. Uh, I think this phrase, this idea that there's a spiritual kingdom now captures what they hold to. And some of this comes because they focus on Christ, that he is the promised redeemer that the Old Testament looked forward to. The Old Testament prophets were, were, were expecting and waiting for this Redeemer to come and save God's people. And redemption has been accomplished. That work is done and it's finished. Uh, if anything, our time in Hebrews has, has shown us that reality. The, the new covenant is in effect today. But they would look to the passages that, in which Jesus talked about the kingdom coming And they would say the kingdom is present in a person. It's present in Jesus. When you draw near to him, you you experience the kingdom. So they look to Matthew 3 and Mark 1 and Matthew 12 where Jesus talks about that idea. So again, they're not expecting that the kingdom is going to come in terms of a physical piece of land right now or in the the nation of Israel uh, dwelling underneath the rule and reign of Jesus on the throne of David. In Jerusalem, that's not an expectation they would have. So, 
in a large part. We'll get into to how they get there later on. But they would say as well then that this messianic age that they were hoping for has begun, which leads us into this, this common um, biblical theological phrase that they'll say that uh, the already or the not yet versus the not yet or eschatology has been inaugurated is a word they'll use, but not consummated. Or we experience all of, of, of the blessings of the new covenant and God's promises and God's kingdom reign now, <laughs> even though there's still a future experience and reality of some of these blessings that are to come. There's a couple of different ways that they'll talk about generally the same idea uh, that uh, salvation blessings are experienced now. So think of... Um, Trying to think of ones that come to mind easily. Um, are we sanctified? Yes. We have been positionally set apart, said that we're holy, declared holy, sanctified in Christ. Are we yet to be sanctified, though? Yes. There's still a day in which we, we are waiting for being fully sanctified and fully holy. Um, so that's just one example of how they might put it. There, there's these already blessings are available to us now. There are blessings that are still yet to come. And um, that's descriptive of, of what's happening in their eschatological expectations. So these present blessings are, are spiritual, not material. Again, that idea that there, there's not a land, there's not, there's not a throne, there's not a, a people, one nation, you know. Um, Mm-hmm. We'll we'll get to that because we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna study what are their hermeneutical presuppositions. How do they study the Bible? How do they what are they seeing in Scripture? And then where does that lead them in terms of a biblical theology that arises out of that? And we'll see what do they do with the Old Testament promises? How are those fulfilled? Um, and more or less, the the basic idea is that they're fulfilled in Jesus. And in those who are united with him, the church. Um, and, and then to an extent that, that some of those promises say like a, a land promise is going to be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth when there's a land. So, so they would also see that, that this age is marked by a spiritual battle between good and evil, between God and Satan. It's not marked by a a battle between trying to um, Christianize uh, governments, Christianize society and culture. Um, So as we think about Jesus, they're going to look to him and see that he sits enthroned at the right hand of God. He's sitting on a throne right now, ruling and reigning as the Messiah. And he reigns over his people by extending spiritual blessings to them. All the blessings that were promised that are now available through him and to his people. Some of the blessings which we experience now and some which are still to come. And what about Satan? So they're going to understand that idea in Revelation 20 that, that Satan is bound to mean that he is, uh, his power and his authority is reduced. He doesn't have full authority and power over this world now. It's curbed. It's um, pulled back. But yet he still has some ability 
Uh, he's still active in ways <clears throat> to deceive people. Um, to, to, yeah, that would be it. So, um, so he's restrained yet active. And they're expecting that he'll be released, as we said, near the end of this age for a final rebellion before Christ returns. Now, as they look and see who, who are God's people in this age, you know, under the, the Old Testament, much of, of God's people were uh, Israel, the nation whom he was speaking to, and the fathers before that and, and, and then before that. But they're going to see that the church is the true Israel. That's how they would understand who the church is and who Israel is, that they're, they're one and the same. And the mission of God's people is to take the gospel to all the nations, to go and make disciples of them, baptizing them, teaching them what Jesus has taught. And then what's the relation of the church to the world during this time? So in post-millennialism, the relation would be that, that we're going out, we're not only, we're making disciples, but making disciples with the hope that we make culture better, that we help people to follow Christ, uh, both in the laws of the land and in the, the production of arts, uh, in, in doing business that's good for everyone. Um, but amillennialists are going to see that this, this is not a time where we expect influence, prosperity, dominance over the culture. There might be phases of that. It's not necessarily a bad thing to strive for uh, God's rule and reign entering into people's lives and, and changing us and changing cultures, our, our neighborhoods being better places. But they're not going to expect that to take place and happen in the long term. And they're going to expect suffering and persecution. And that's going to come against us in this age. So that's just a real quick jump into the, the broad uh, perspective of what amillennialism holds to. Any questions about any of that or any questions that you, you've got in your mind and you want to make sure we, uh, we need to cover that over the next couple of weeks? Um, Jillian. So have they always thought... I've talked to people that believe that, that not that the church replaced Israel, but that it was always, you know, when you talk about predestination, like before the beginning of time, that God just chose. So it's always Israel has always been a spiritual group of people, not necessarily a physical location, you know. And so would an amillennialist say that before the church age, that it was never about a physical Israel, or that it's always been about just God's chosen people is going to be, you know, where we would distinguish between Israel and Christians, you know, because mm-hmm. we have, you know, people like Job and, you know, different mm-hmm. people that were part that God called out. I don't know if Job was, <laughs> I don't know, wherever Job fit into the time of it. Yeah. I want to be careful here because I haven't fully studied that yet, so I don't want to misspeak on the behalf of all millennials. Um because I'm not planning to do that today or next week yet. So, um, But I think in general, they would say, looking back, Israel was the church. I, I think that's fair. I don't know if Davey would have any different. or um, That Israel the was, the, was the Old Testament church. And today, if you will, the New Testament church is Israel, is the Old Testament Israel. They're one and the same people. And... Um, I'm trying to think, Paul in Romans speaks right about, um, is, it, is it early in Romans where he speaks about, um, 
uh, is that it? Where he talks about this idea that there are, are Jews who are uh, true Jews circumcised in the heart versus those that are just ethnic Jews. I mean, that's something we would see even in Jesus' teaching, right? That he comes to distinguish to them, hey, just because you're in the ethnic people, just because you look like your brothers and sisters and your family and you live in this nation, doesn't mean that you're necessarily spiritual Jews, if you will, or spiritually God's people, spiritually alive. So I think that's one of the things that they would look to, to, to get to that idea of the church in Israel are the same, that they're the spiritual people. So, and we'll, we'll step into that more in the days ahead as I study more and make sure I understand. So, yeah. Um, do you think that amillennialism does justice to the language in Revelation 19 that this other gentleman had mentioned about him not only being bound, but also being, um, you know, sealed and locked up and imprisoned or whatever? Do you feel like it does justice to it, or do you feel like that's a, that's a hard verse for amillennialists to... I think it's a hard verse yeah um and we walked a couple weeks ago through revelation 20 and you weren't with us so you didn't have the benefit of walking through us with that but what do they do with that there is something that they try to that they do to understand that text um they see symbolism there that this is a a picture a metaphor um and they see old testament uh prophecies that, that leads into what's happening there in Revelation 20 as well. So they have, if you will, a, and this is one of the things we want to come back to in this whole conversation is they have a viable interpretation of Scripture, if you will. They're, they're wrestling with the text. They're trying to make sense of it. But at the end of the day, there's three scripturally viable options, but only one of them is right at the end of the day. And together we're trying to study this and be as best as we can as persuaded of which view we hold to. Um, that's, that's one way I would think of it. So they're seeking to understand the text, doing their best. But are we persuaded of a different view? Perhaps. So is that? Yeah. So let me pray for us and, and we'll go gather and worship upstairs. Um, Father, thank you for your grace to us and your son, Jesus. Uh, that, that yes, spiritual blessings of the new covenant are available to us today. Um, we've been in Hebrews and, and we've been blessed to be reminded of those. And we've seen the greatness of our high priest, Jesus. He, he is the one that we were waiting for and expecting and hoping for. Um, but help us in the days ahead as we study amillennialism to, to understand these brothers and sisters and what they hold to, why they hold to it, and to, to have grace for them, uh, to seek unity, and yet to say if there's a, a way in which we um, part paths with them with what we are persuaded by and what we hold to, to do that with grace and kindness to them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.